Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Tree Church Bible Study. Really excited that you're joining us today. Today, our Friday edition is always the book of Revelation, or at least it has been for the last about six months. We started back in January processing through the book of Revelation, and and, and Romans picked up somewhere around February or March, and so we, we actually have been doing two studies right now at the same time. Uh, the Romans Bible Study releases on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and then uh, the, the uh, Revelation Study comes out on Friday, uh, usually Friday mornings, Friday afternoons, it releases then. So I hope you've uh, enjoyed following along. I hope it's been beneficial. I hope that you've got a sense of John's heart, uh, first and foremost for for Christ and for for the love of his Savior, but then also um, his heart for the churches and, and, and his message to us who live in the 21st century. We're, we're, we're 2,000 some years removed from John, and yet uh, his message in Revelation is just as relevant as, uh, to, to us as it was to the churches that he wrote to. And so that is the what I love about the Word of God. It's dynamic. It's, it's powerful. It's living and active because of the Holy Spirit and the, and the Spirit's ability to make it applicable for our lives. And so I uh, really have been loving going through this book. So I hope it's been a benefit to you. And today we are picking up in chapter 16. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21, which is the entire uh, which is the entire chapter. Now, I've had some people say to me that they really like the, uh, the, the kind of the verse-by-verse verse way that I did this a few weeks back. Now, I, I want to say that I don't know that I can do that every week because there are large chunks of, of Scripture that really fit together. And when we're covering whole chapters, breaking it down verse-by-verse verse is, is kind of tricky. But um, I'm going to do it that way, that structure the best I can. So, it, but it may not be just like one verse. It may be one verse and then an explanation, and then maybe a chunk of verses and an explanation to and kind of try to do a hybrid so that we're not here all day long going through one chapter of Revelation. So, all right, um, I want to get started. Uh, I want to start and open us up with prayer, and then uh, we'll just get going into verse one of chapter sixteen. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love and your grace in our lives, and I pray that today that you would speak to us uh, through your word. God, I pray that, that you would both convict, that you would challenge, and that you would comfort and, and keep us. Uh, God, the, the whole call of Revelation is us um, remembering that, uh, first of all, that you rescued us, that you saved us, but then that, that you've called us to be faithful uh, faithful witnesses to who you are and what you've done, to your resurrection, to your promise of new life. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to live out of that. Fill us and empower us with your Holy Spirit, because we cannot do it on our own. And so, God, uh, give us what we need to be faithful to that. God, I pray that today that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say through your word. And Lord, uh, lead me, guide me as I explain it so that I can explain it in a clear and understandable way. Jesus, we love you, we praise your name, and we give you thanks for who you are and what you do. Amen. All right, let's jump into verse 1 here in chapter 16. If you don't know, if you're looking down at the screen and you're watching me, I am oftentimes looking at my screen. It's just a little bit easier to read than the monitor. So if I look away from the camera, it's to look at the notes and to, uh, to, to read the Bible passages. So that's just what's going on. I'm not, not paying attention while I'm talking. So... Um, Anyhow, chapter, chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, 
Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, if you remember, we are in a theme of seven. John loved the number seven. We've seen seven plagues, and we've seen seven bowls. We've seen seven trumpets. We've seen seven seals, and so uh, seven churches. And so there's just this theme of seven. If you remember right, it's the theme of completeness. It's, it's, it's wholeness. It's like it's fully uh, realized, I guess, is the best way to say it. And so today we're looking at the seven different bowls of God's wrath. Now, that means we're going to be talking about the idea of wrath, and, and nobody really likes the idea of wrath. The thought of, of someone standing in opposition to us is not a, a, a fun thought. It's not a fun thought in our culture. I don't like it. My kids don't like it. I can tell you that because uh, when I ask them to do something or I tell them to do something, they don't like it. Um, and so we really like to be autonomous people, and we like that, that there are no consequences to the actions that we have. We want to live our lives the way that we live them. But the biblical story does not testify to that being the reality and with, with, within w- which we live. Um, and so the idea of God's wrath, though it's not popular, and though it can be misconstrued, and I think we talked about this last time, how there's just this myth that God is this grumpy old man in heaven, and he's just looking for somebody to zap. And John, through this this treaty or this treatise of of, of these these judgments and these plagues and in God pouring out His wrath, uh, is demonstrating something about God that I don't think we usually and typically see when we think about wrath, and 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 that comes to the first point that I want to bring up is that wrath is based in God's goodness and His love. It expresses itself in anger and in punishment and in judgment at times. But it's really rooted in his goodness and his love. And, and we're going to see later on, and, and we're going to actually explore more points here in a moment, but these passages today are that we're going to look at in 16, and passages that we've looked at in the past, where, where God speaks to his people who have put their faith in him, and they've been persecuted, and they've been, uh, been beaten and imprisoned and killed because of their faith in Christ— God is going to protect them. God, as a loving father and a loving husband, has invited humanity into a life with him, and that humanity has rejected him. It's turned away from him, and then it has actually oppressed and stood against the the people of God. And so God, in his love and his goodness for his people, stands in opposition against those who would reject him, and those who would reject his people. And so God's wrath is based out of his goodness and his love. Now, that can seem like God is for some people and God is against others, but but we're going to talk about that here a little bit today and and why why it's so devastating that some uh, some are, are going to experience the wrath of God as opposed to the acceptance and love of God. Because that's not that God is just looking to zap somebody. It's not. Wrath is the end result of God's long-suffering with those who have rejected his plan of salvation and his plan for life. So what I mean is this, is that God has constantly and consistently throughout the the history of humanity created pathways and, and a plan for him to bring humanity back into relationship with him, to, to allow humanity to experience life, 
to forgive them for their sins, which we, we find in Jesus, to, to find new life and to walk in relationship with him. God, throughout the book of Revelation, and John has expressed this time and time again, please repent, give in to God, surrender to God, follow God, find life and join God. This has been the constant message, and this is the message of the gospel, that Jesus came to make a way so that all could be made right in God. This is the invitation that's open to every single human being alive. And those who live, lived in the past, and those who live, will live in the future, if, if God chooses to, uh, to not come back yet. And so, in, in all of these ways, God has called and, and begged and even pleaded with people to come and experience life, love, and grace. And Revelation has shown that, that, that there are some that choose not to do that. And so, though God has been patient, though, though God has been... Uh, God has been pleading with people to come and to respond and to find life. People don't respond. And, and we're going to see that through much of, of this. Uh, we're going to see that through much of today's, uh, today's reading. It's a, it's a pretty consistent theme, actually. So, um, so that wrath is not just something that God does quickly. It's after long, a long time of calling people to repentance proclaiming the gospel, giving people opportunities, revealing himself and making himself known. And, and so that God decides finally, and, and what I should say, decides he decides to give people over to their decision to, to, to not walk in a relationship with him, to not, um, to not find life in him. And so that experience then is experiencing God's wrath. So wrath is both judgment and justice. For the people of God, it is justice being poured out. For those who have been oppressed and who, those who are part of God and, and, and have, been, uh, have been rejected and imprisoned and, and some of them martyred, God is going to fight for them and justice will finally come through. For those who have done the oppression, judgment is coming. And so God will say that, that for those who have been part of the, oppressor, uh, of the oppression and have not repented and have not given in to God's ways, then judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. Wrath, is, as we're going to see here in these next few verses, is both a natural consequence and it's a God-directed act. And what I mean by that is that God is going to use the, the, the human condition, the brokenness of our humanity— to allow the consequences of that brokenness to pour out on the earth and to pour out on, uh, onto humanity. He's going to talk about the sun. He's going to talk about uh, the natural elements of, that, that have been broken and abused and, and overused by humanity. And he's going to say that, that those things, because you have not used them in the way that I called you to, there are going to be consequences, and it's going to come back, and it is going to levy a, a, a judgment on you. And then wrath is, is God-directed. God's hand is a part of it. Though he uses and allows natural consequences to be part of his wrath, God, it's very much a reality that John says God is the one who is directing these things to work out on this judgment. So God is making the judgment. I realize I'm talking a lot with my hands today, so I'll try to keep those under control. On to the next uh, verses. That was all in verse 1, so I promise we'll pick up a little bit, and so it won't take as long 
to get through the rest of these. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. Just remember, the mark of the beast is the ones who have chosen to follow after the beast. They have chosen to worship uh, the beast. It's idol worship. It's sexual immorality. The ones who have given themselves in, to, um, to, to seeking after the values and systems of the beast. That's what the mark of the beast is. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the, the water say, You are just, O holy one, who are and were, for you have judged these things, because they shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and are just. The fourth angel poured his bowl of the bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God, who had authority over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So once again, in these verses, we see these natural elements that God had designed to be life-giving to humanity, that God had designed to be life-giving to creation, are now being agents of destruction because God has taken them and is using them as agents of his wrath. And so uh, it's almost like it's an undoing of, human, uh, of, of creation. So the very things that were meant to bring life are the very thing that God is using to destroy and, and to, to uh, bring destruction or, and to bring judgment. And, and this is a lot of times, uh, and a lot of uh, scholars believe that this is, again, the natural consequence of our sin and our abuse of creation. So um, I realize that gets into a little bit of, um, I, I don't want to get into the whole like global warming debate and, and the, the, the political side of that. The, the reality is, is we have been called as God's creatures, God's humans, to steward the earth, not to abuse it, but to steward it. That means caring for it. That means making sure that we leave resources for future generations. That means not uh, just uh, consuming so that we are fat, happy, and whole. Um, it's it's using creation in a sustainable way, in a way that 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 brings life and flourishing for everything around us, not just ourselves. And so. When, when, the, when you hear me talk about it uh, here, the, the ecological side of this, it's very much a part of the, the, the biblical worldview is that we as God's, uh, as those that have been called to have dominion over the earth, it's not a dominion that is domineering. It's not a dominion that is, is uh, abusive in its, uh, in its use of the earth. It's, it's, a, it's stewardship. It's care. It's a love. It's cultivating. It's it's never it's never meant to be something that we take and use simply for our own pleasure. Um, and so, though we do get pleasure from from the different things of the earth, food gives us pleasure. But again, not to be abused. Something to be used by humanity. Um, okay, so that was kind of a tangent. Sorry about that. In verse five, we we once again see that. 
that the the angels declaring or that this voice is declaring that God is just and protective and that is the reason for his wrath the the blood of the martyrs had been spilt the blood of the prophets have been spilt and so God is bringing about justice and he is just and right in 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 waging this judgment on those who have ultimately and finally rejected and the result is not repentance um, and, and, and some people will say, and this is coming back to uh, the picture before of God being this grumpy God, that he's on the inside uh, of, uh, he's inside his house, he's got the door locked, and people are knocking to get in, and he's not letting them in. That's not the picture of the Bible, and it's not the picture of Revelation. It's more so that people have locked the door and won't let God in, and so now there is a judgment for that. You're going to hear it multiple times in these passages today that, that people, in, 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 in light of these judgments, their response is to curse God, not to repent. In verse 10, the fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The throne of the beast, this is the seat of the empire. Uh, for John, it was the Roman Empire. For us, we have to look around and see where, um, where, we, where there are structures and systems that resemble the oppressive nature of the Roman Empire, the, the all-consuming nature of the Roman Empire, the economically driven uh, and, and relationally uh, defunct uh, ways of empire. And so... We are left to kind of determine and, and recognize empire around us. Um, and and there, there, are, there are numerous ways in which we can recognize it. Um, and so, so this beast, this, this seat of the, imp, the empire, the seat of Babylon has been, and we're going to see that name come up in the next few verses again, this seat has been dethroned. God has, has levied his judgment, and now... Um, it's, it's cast out into the darkness. What's interesting here is, is the way that the people respond. It, it's, again, not this, this picture of repentance. It's not this recognition that God is, is sovereign, that he's good, that he's loving, and that he is inviting them into life. It's, just, it's almost this clenching of the fists. It's this, this hardening of the heart. And, and you really do, in these different bowls of God's wrath, you get these picture of the exodus and of the plagues poured out against Egypt. And you get this picture of these people hardening their, hardening their heart like Pharaoh did. So when you see and hear that this that God hardens the heart, you can see that it's through these things that, that the heart is actually reflected out and is exposed. It's not, and, and, and maybe, I don't have the idea that of sovereignty that, that, that God, um, God is the one who actively did that to Pharaoh. It's, it's that Pharaoh's heart was exposed through God's action, through his plans, through the, the, the sources of judgment that he brought on onto Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart got hardened. I realize that's a plain reading of, of a lot of texts in Scripture, um, and, and it's, it's not that I'm—I I don't think—I think the idea is that, that, that God exposed Pharaoh's heart. I think that's what's happening here. People's hearts are being exposed by this difficulty in this trial. So instead of repenting and finding life in God, they're clenching their fist, they're gritting their teeth, and they're cursing God. On to the next verses. 
The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon. Remember, the dragon is the main beast. From the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet, these are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, God the Almighty. See, I am coming like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake in his clothes, not going about naked and exposed to shame. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Maybe if you're reading the NIV or, or one of the newer translations, it will say Armageddon. The Greek word is actually Armageddon. There's an H sound before, uh, before Armageddon. So, um, looking at these verses... First of all, the foul spirits that are going around uh, in the shape of, it, they're in the likeness of frogs. Uh, if I go back, I, I want to just kind of look at that real quick and read that again. Uh, it just says like frogs. So it's just, um, frogs had a form of deity in the Egyptian culture. Frogs had a, uh, frogs had some, uh, some, some spiritual context in Egypt, and, and we're getting a lot of Exodus imagery here. So, um, and, and so we see that these these false witnesses, these false spirits, these these false um, these false demons are going out, and they're doing signs, and they're doing miracles, and they're convincing the nations of the world to gather together and to fight. And and the image that that John is dredging up here is the Old Testament image of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is, is this, this moment in time that the Israelites anticipated. Um, they feared it, and they anticipated it because it was both a judgment on, their, on, on Israel's failure to, uh, to be God's people. It was also a judgment on the nations surrounding. It, but for those who remained faithful and those who looked forward to the day of the Lord, it was a day of justice. It was a day of reckoning. It was a day when all the, all the wrongs would be made right. And so all of these themes kind of are wrapped up in this idea of the day of the Lord. And John is bringing about that, that picture and that image here in, in this section. And, and the day of the Lord oftentimes has this militaristic uh, imagery. And, and we talked about back in, in 14 how the, the, the lamb is going to lead an army. And we'll see it again. I think it's in 19. Where where the the uh, where Jesus is riding on the white horse, and and there's blood on his robe, and so a lot of people will s- seem to make that think that that it is actually the blood of um, the blood of his enemies, but really, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm gonna leave that one. I'm gonna leave you in suspense. I'm gonna leave that one for 19. But again, the imagery is this this kind of this army and this battle is is ensuing. But it's not a battle of, um, it's not a battle of swords. It's not a battle. It's 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 this it's this place where God is going to pour out His judgment on the nations, and that that is really the picture that we're we're getting. These nations are going to gather for war, and God is going to pour out His judgment on on the nations. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of like popular language. Around Armageddon, there's a lot of popular uh, thought around this idea, and and I, I think we we like it. We kind of gravitate towards it, 
but so I, I want to kind of, um, I want to kind of give some thought to, and not a whole lot of time, because there's not really a, a whole lot of detail about what he means by this term Armageddon. Essentially, um, in the Old Testament, there was this place called Megiddo, and it was in Manasseh. And, and so it was a plain, and there was actually a large hill there. And so they think that possibly what they're referring to is this place. So there have been a lot of Old Testament battles that took place. King Josiah was actually killed by, by the Egyptian king Necho, by the Egyptian pharaoh there. And so there, there's this Old Testament allusion to this place and where these, where these battles have taken place. Really, the location is not, uh, is not the most important part of this chapter. So uh, again, because the battle is not necessarily a physical battle, it's, it's, it's a representation of, of God gathering the nations, and, and um, at least from as I've read it and understand it. Now, I'm going to say this as I say every single thing. If you come across the source that would say, no, nope, this is a physical thing, we've not been reading this entire book this way. This book is so filled with imagery and metaphor, and, and we see that God's armies uh, are, are, are fought and won by the blood of the Lamb, not, not by sword. And, and really, John stands in, in antithesis to the, to the idea of the sword. It's that through love and through sacrifice and through um, self-giving that, that these battles are won. And, and it's, it's a battle that was actually won already on the cross. And so that's why I kind of interpret it this way. I know, I know in the dispensational camp, there, there's a lot of thought that this is actually a place and a time, and there's actual nations that are going to meet here and have a battle. Um, I could be wrong. I'll, I'll say it that way. I, I always want to lead with I could be wrong. But if we read it in light of how we've been reading this and how I kind of think that John is explaining or laying this book out, I, I, I think this is probably one of the lesser important parts of this actual, even this section of verses because of chapter or verse 15. Verse 15 is this reminder that as these false witnesses go out, the, the, the attention turns from those that are experiencing the wrath and God pouring out the wrath to a call for the people of God, for those, the faithful, to stay faithful amidst all of this going on. So as false teachers and false prophets are going out amongst the nations, as all of these signs are being done, trying to disprove that uh, Christ is Lord, that the lamb has been slain and that God is on the throne, that, that all these signs are proven, are, are, are being displayed, that it's possible that some would get tripped up. And, and John's call in verse 15 is, is, is a call to, and, and a reminder to note, stay focused. Remember, Christ is Lord. Christ has won the victory. Christ will win the day in the end. And, and so his call is to stay faithful. He tells them not to walk around naked and not to be exposed. It's essentially, don't get caught sleeping. Don't get caught just kind of compromising. Don't get caught giving in to these things, but stay faithful to Jesus. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake. You guys should recognize that language from earlier on. Anytime God shows up in the book of Revelation, there's lightning, rumblings, 
peals of thunder, and violent earthquakes, such as not occurred since people were upon the earth. So, the vi- so violent was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And a huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God, or the plague of the ha- or, the, or for the plague of the hail. And so fearful was that plague. John, though he waited, if you remember back, John did the six seals and then waited for the seventh seal. John did the six trumpets and then waited for the seventh trumpet. And then here in the seven bowls of wrath, it happens immediately. So as the wrath is poured out, this, this, is, this last final bowl of wrath is poured out onto the earth. And, and, and the idea of, of its immediacy is the idea of its finality. So this is God's final and full judgment on the earth. And and the result is that even those who have been called to follow the gospel, those who have been given opportunity to follow Jesus, those who have been given the the potential to find life and hope, they chose not to repent. They they didn't turn. They didn't uh, follow God. And so this final judgment is poured out. And ultimate, what, what, what is ultimate for those who stand outside of God is destruction. And so what we see here is God's final bowl of wrath is poured out, and it's the full and final judgment. And the result of that is the destruction of the people who were outside of, uh, outside of God. Now, I want to conclude by asking a few questions. Why do you think that things like this kind of infatuate us? If, if I were to be honest... If you look at much of the popular language, if you look at much of the popular media, if you look at much of the popular literature that revolves around Revelation, we want to see the destruction. We want to know um, how God's going to pour out His wrath. We want to. We 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 kind of want this. We're we're enthralled by this idea of God judging and the earth kind of coming to a culminating end. We're kind of enthralled by that. There's all kind of apocalyptic movies. There's all kinds of, of Armageddon-style uh, things, uh, events that, that we fascinate on in, in movies. Why is that? Because in reality, what happens at the culmination of history are two things, and both are, are ultimate and final. The, the first thing that, that God promises us, and this will be chapter 20 and 21, is that for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, for those who are the people of God, they will have ultimate and full and final life. They will have everlasting life. And and no one, nothing, will be able to take that away. For those who stand outside, for those who experience these devastating things, they're going to get what they fully and finally wanted, and that's separation from God and life apart from Him. And that should break our hearts. It should not just be a fat, an infatuation with, and, and I get it, like, especially for those who are the martyrs, I can get how they're, they feel that God was, or not that God was unjust, but that, that, that full justice would be the people who did that to them, 
that they would experience that same pain and same turmoil. We want that for our enemies. When somebody hurts us, we want them to feel the exact same pain that we felt, if not worse. And so I get that that's an infatuation. But God's heart the entire time is that that those who would even stand in opposition, such as Paul, would ultimately see the error of their ways and turn and repent. And I would say, what we have here, what we have is an opportunity to live our lives in such a way that we are faithful to Jesus, that we walk as faithful witnesses throughout our, the entirety of our lives, that we walk with people and, and ex- experience and walk in a relationship with people in our everyday lives that are going to experience not the, the joy of everlasting life, but the, the, the pain of, of judgment and the pain of wrath. And does that break our hearts? And does it change how we see and how we treat and how we, um, the hope that we have for them? Does our prayer life reflect that? Does our language reflect that? And, and all we can hope to do is that as we live our lives faithful to Jesus and as we proclaim the gospel and proclaim him to be Lord, as we can hope and pray and, 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 and trust that God is going to draw more hearts to him and that, that, that we, as we wait for the final culmination of our salvation, we can hope that others will join in too. And so, God's wrath, as we look at it, is, is a heartbreaking thing. It, it's, it's, a, it's very much a part of who God is. It's, it's, it's rooted in His goodness, in His justice, and in His love. It's a reality that's going to take place, and that is taking place even. But, God is always giving us a way out until the day that He returns. And so, my prayer and hope for you this week is you're processing all of this information and you're hearing all of these and seeing all of these pictures of God's wrath. I pray that it stirs your heart for, for someone in your life that you know and you love and that, that it will stir your heart to begin to just bless them and love them and give you opportunities to proclaim and to explain and to, to show them that there is life to be found in a relationship with Jesus. Guys, thanks so much for joining us this week, and I pray that you have a great week.